welcome back to episode 3, folks. Thank you again for your patience, love, and support. We'll bring my story to a close with this one. For now. My story is far from over, and our story is only just beginning. So, let's try and take this thing as far as we can. Hopefully, I can leave you with something meaningful. And if you'd like to reach out and share some of your own crazy stories, please do. But as always, if you don't like my gate, don't swing on it. Let's bring this one home, guys. I laid my bags beside my bed and wrapped every available blanket I had around me as tightly as I could, and I went to sleep. Even though it was bitter cold, I completely passed out. When I woke up, I was wrapped up in a mangled mess of blankets, deflated rubber air mattress, and steel accordion bed frame. All of the air had let itself out of my bed while I slept, and I woke up trying to free myself. The same happened to the other boys, too. Refilling our beds with air became routine, but those steel frames had to go. For the first day or two, I was given some time to shake off any jet lag I had and get myself situated in this new town. When I did start work, I began as a helper, more or less. I was green, so I had to learn the divisions of the company, and I'd eventually find my fit. Home pros had multiple specialties. Carpentry and finish work, carpet and upholstery cleaning, furnace and duct cleaning, and kitchen exhaust system cleaning and certification. I tried my hand at all of it, but I ended up spending most of my time divided between the furnace and duct work side of things and the kitchen exhaust system side. The crew also brought on a new guy a few months after I started. His name was Tim. Tim was in his late 40s, and he had experience cleaning kitchen hoods, so him and I started working together regularly. Tim moved into the crew house, and he and I would work shift work every night, cleaning systems for every restaurant in town and every oil camp surrounding town by about a three-hour radius. Tim and I bonded, and I learned everything I could from him. He was the lead hand on our two-man team, so I followed his lead on every job, and he showed me a lot. He also told me that he was married to a Turkish woman from Kyrgyzstan, and he was trying as hard as he could to sponsor her and her daughter so that they could legally move to Canada. First, Tim needed a house, so he took over the lease to the crew house. Ian, Kenneth, and I, we all moved downstairs to the bedrooms in the basement, and it wasn't long before Tim's wife Julia and her daughter Melissa moved in. Tim and I also challenged for our trade certification. I got mine on the first try, I was stoked. Tim had to try a second time, but he also got his as well. Tim and I would work night shift, and I'd pay my rent to him. I'd also pick up extra shifts during the day cleaning furnaces, so as long as I got enough time to grab a nap sometime throughout the day, I was basically good, and I was working around the clock almost seven days a week for months on end. Sure, I was making money hand over fist, but I was starting to burn myself out. My entire life was revolving around work, 
and the little bit of personal time I had was spent biking around town, shopping for food or whatever essentials I needed, dating was tough. And any chance of a relationship seemed almost impossible. Or so I thought. I was working crazy hours and didn't know when my next days off would be. But by chance, I met a girl through a mutual friend. We had agreed to make plans sometime. But with both of us working in a town that never sleeps, who knew when sometime would be? My nights were always spent crammed inside a ceiling duct, spraying acid, scraping, pressure washing, so from sundown to sunup, I was in a confined space working my ass off. Her days were spent working long hours out on an oil site, but we managed to make plans on a night that we both weren't working. I had said that I had never seen the northern lights up here, so we decided to grab some ice caps from Tim Hortons and drive north of town where there was less light pollution. We parked and opened up the sunroof of her truck, laid our seats back, and we chatted for hours while we watched the stars and the green glow of the northern lights dancing above us. We hit it off, and after that night we started dating. Her name was Ashley, and she was from the east coast as well. A little further east than me, the one-of-a-kind province of Newfoundland. She's a Newfie. Over the next few months, if I wasn't working, I was spending as much time with her as I could. She also understood my hectic work schedule, so compromise for the both of us was easy. Ashley introduced me to her parents, Cliff and Maureen. I began to spend a lot of time with her and her family. Even though I was still paying rent to Tim, I spent most of my time with Ashley. My time at home pros also came to an end, due to wage disputes and hour cuts, so I moved on to Hertz Equipment Rental. I had recently bought my first truck with the help of Ashley's dad, Cliff, so I finally had my own means of transportation again, too. Tim basically became my landlord because the crew house became Tim's house. I lived there and paid rent to him, but with me changing jobs, he no longer had me as a co-worker or a confidant, so I think he took offense to me leaving. So much so that the first week that I started working at Hertz, Tim decided to screw me over. I was waiting on my first paycheck, so to make some extra cash, in the evenings and weekends, I'd go door to door and offer to shovel people's roofs and driveways for 50, 70 bucks a pop, depending on the size. With my new truck, it was easy to toss a ladder and shovel in the back and travel around town. So during my first week at Hertz, rent was coming due the following week. I called Tim to ask him if it was possible that I pay him on Wednesday instead of Monday. I also offered to pay Tim over half of my rent money up front but Tim simply said, It's no problem, man. I can wait the extra two days. It's all good, buddy. Regardless, that weekend I had two days off and I spent them shoveling my guts out. But I made enough money to cover my rent, in full and on time. I was spending my nights with Ashley because our love was fresh. Plus, I was back to working day shifts so we could see each other more often.
Even though I was still paying rent to Tim, I was only there for two or three days a week. Nevertheless, that Monday, the day that rent was due, I called Tim on my lunch break and let him know that I had made enough money to cover my rent and that I'd stop by right after work to fix up with him. Tim's reply, yeah, don't bother. Over the weekend, I went down to your room and I boxed up all your stuff and put it out in the garage. I already have your room rented to somebody else. You can come after work and collect your things. Click. Caught off guard, I sat in my truck, contemplating my next move. I was now homeless. In February. What Tim just did was highly illegal, and I could have taken him to court over it. But that's not the type of person I am. But what the hell was I going to do now? The only thing I could think to do was call Ashley, and I let her know the situation I was in. I said that I'd probably be sleeping in my truck for the next few days until I found an apartment to rent. Ashley told me to hold on for a second, and the line went silent. She came back a minute later and said, Mom and Dad said that you can come stay with us if you want to toss them a little bit of rent money. You and I can stay in the basement together until we find a place of our own. Ashley and I had only been a couple for about six months at that point. I told her I didn't want to impose or step on anyone's toes, but they insisted that I go there after work once I grabbed my things. I finished out my work day, and I went to pick up my stuff at the crew house. When I pulled in the driveway, Tim quickly finished his smoke and darted back inside. He wouldn't speak to me. So, I went to the garage, I flung the door open as hard as I could, I grabbed all of my boxes and my guitars, and loaded them into my truck. I spun out of that driveway. Good riddance, asshole. When I got to Ashley's parents' place across town, I was met in the garage by Ashley, and soon after Cliff and Maureen. Anything I needed regular access to, I could take downstairs with us, and anything I needed storage for, I could put in the attic above the garage. Perfect. Ashley and I took over a bedroom downstairs, and we now officially live together with her parents. Interesting. Living with Ashley and her folks was great. Awkward at times, especially with her dad, but great nevertheless. Anytime Ashley and I weren't working, we'd find different areas around Alberta to go camping. So we'd travel to Edmonton, Calgary, Banff, Jasper, Slave Lake. Cliff and Maureen treated me like one of their own. Always there if I needed a hand or needed someone to chat with. And I was always there to do the same. Ashley's older brother Chad and his girlfriend Jessica lived downstairs for a time too. So everything for the most part was smooth sailing. It was easy going. We truly became close and I got to see what an, an amazing family actually looked like. Just the salt of the earth type people. Honest values and hard working. Ashley and I were inseparable and totally in love. We knew we wanted our own place eventually and we started talking about what our future together might hold. I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with this girl if I could. I felt like my life was the most stable it had ever been, and I could see a future with Ashley. So before I knew it, 
I was leaving a jewelry store with a ring in my pocket. Ashley's birthday was coming up, and we had a camping trip to Banff planned, so I figured that would be the perfect place to pop the question. But I had to do one very important thing first. I had to ask for her parents' blessing. Most importantly, her dad, Cliff. I got back to the house, and sure enough, Cliff was out in the garage. With the box in my pocket, I sat down across from him, lit up a smoke, and started chit-chatting. Now, on a side note, understand that I respect Cliff Young more than any other person on this planet. He helped me out when he barely knew me. He'd teach me little things with carpentry and different odds and ends around the house, and he'd take me with him on whatever odd job he had on the go at the time just so I could learn something and make a couple extra bucks. And like I said, he also helped me get my truck. The first fully legal vehicle I had ever owned. A 2012 Ford F-150. I needed a rig, and all Ford would approve me for was a small hatchback escape. That's about as useful to me as a tricycle at the X Games, so I went home to shop around online. When Cliff got home from work, I let him know how my shopping at the Ford dealership went, and he suggested that we go back down together. We asked the receptionist if we could see the manager, and she let us right in. When I walked in, he said, Oh, Travis, you're here for that escape, are you? No, I replied, I have somebody here that would like to speak with you. And Cliff walks in behind me. The manager was taken off guard by my tactics a little bit, but he greeted Cliff by name. Oh, hi, Cliff. You know Travis? Yeah, he's been with Ashley for a while now, and I hear you can't find him a truck. Ashley just bought a new truck from you guys. Maureen is on her second vehicle, and I'm on my third, and I can't count how many people I've sent to you to buy a new vehicle, so... If you'd like to keep getting my business, you should really see if you can find Travis a truck, too. He said that he'd see what he could do, and he disappeared behind his computer again. When his head popped back up from the monitor, he said, I can't give him a 2013 because they just came in on the lot last week. I have two 2012s left. This one here, the blue one. It's on for 44000 right now, but I can give it to you for... And he clicked away at his computer for a minute. How's 33000 sound? I drove off the lot in a brand new truck that day in my name. Holy shit. Needless to say, I look up to Cliff. He always had an answer for any question that I had. Knowledge for days. Humble. Down to earth quiet and reserved. For a long-ass time, I couldn't get a read on that man. Unless he'd make a random wisecrack or poke fun at my height like he liked to do sometimes, I found it really hard to look him in the eye. I was dating his daughter, living in his basement, eating and sleeping in his house, using his amenities, and, for lack of a better term, porking his pride and joy. Could you look that man in the eye? If I were in his shoes, I'd string me up by the left nut and do target practice with frozen paintballs on the right. 
So above all, this man's approval was my number one priority. As I sat down across from him, I said, I got Ashley's birthday gift. I want to give it to her when we go to Banff. My nerves were firing and my heart started to race. What'd you get her? I slowly pulled this small box out of my coat pocket and his eyebrow raises right as his glance meets mine. Our eyes lock and he says, Got her an engagement ring, did you? Yes, sir. But I wanted to do the right thing and ask for your blessing before I said or did anything. That was probably the hardest sentence that ever left my lips. Well, he paused. You treat Ashley really good. You certainly have my blessing, but it comes with one very big stipulation. What's that? I responded with a nervous smile. Once you take her, you're not fucking bringing her back. There's no return policy with this one, young man. <laughs> I shook his hand and I gave him a hug, and with that I was ready to go camping. After nine hours of driving, multiple pit stops, arriving and setting up our campsite, we were ready for some fun in Kananaskis country. And this ring was starting to burn a hole in my pocket. I was waiting for the perfect moment to pop the question, but that moment hadn't presented itself yet. We drove around, checking out little shops and landmarks along the way, all the while, I'm trying to hide this huge square bulge in my pocket. Every time Ashley hugged me or we held hands, I'd make sure to shift my hips slightly or walk with the box on the opposite side of her and I. Somehow, against all odds, I pulled it off until the early part of the evening. Before heading back to our campsite at Mount Kidd, we found ourselves walking along the beach. Not far away and surrounded by the rocky mountains on one side overlooking the beach and lush thick forest on the other side. It was one of the most beautiful places I had ever seen. This was the spot. This was the time. Ashley stopped and started skipping rocks out onto the lake. With her back to me we started chatting and she took in the scenery. I tried to make it seem like I was kicking rocks and walking around behind her until I sneakily got down on one knee. She made a joke saying, Well, Mom and Dad like you. I guess you're stuck with me for a while. My response? Well, hopefully the rest of our lives. And with that, she turned around. Will you marry me? She clasped her hands around her mouth nodded and said yes and she hugged me and it was at that moment we heard clapping there was a hill overlooking the beach with a couple of families up there barbecuing they watched as I proposed and when Ashley and I noticed them I threw my arms in the air and screamed she said yes I had a cheering section for my marriage proposal we called her parents to tell them the news they already knew. Ashley said, I guess I'm not your little girl anymore. And without missing a beat, Maureen said, We didn't lose a daughter. We gained a son. That's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me.
Maureen and I connect on a level more than most. She could relate to some of my stories because her childhood was less than ideal. If I could choose another mom besides my own, I'd search high and low for that woman. She's truly one of a kind. Now we were engaged and the reality soon set in that we needed to find our own place. We couldn't have a wedding and go back to living in her parents' basement. So we started looking for a home of our own. It took a little while, but before we knew it, we found a mobile that was right for us. A small yard and a garage in the back, big enough for storage and a man cave for me. We figured we could make it work and took over the title to our home at the beginning of 2015. 2015 was a big year for us. After settling into our new place, we felt like it just wasn't quite complete yet. So, we decided to get a puppy. A precious little Havanese Shih Tzu mix, white with a couple caramel patches on her back. A beautiful little girl we decided to call Zoe. We drove about four hours in the middle of February in wintry Alberta weather. Minus 40, ice, snow and less than ideal driving conditions. Ashley and I would trade off driving duties the way we always had. We met up with the breeder and picked up our pup. About halfway home with Zoe comfortably sitting on my lap, nice and peacefully, she puked and shit all over me. We became the proud owners of a dog that gets carsick. It's gotten better over the years, but after any length of time, we run the risk of Zoe becoming a dirty bomb in the back seat. As I said, 2015 was a big year. Engaged, new house, new puppy. This adulthood thing kind of hits you like a Mack truck. But I was doing a decent job at gripping onto that bumper and going along for the ride that life was taking me. And it was around that time that Jackie decided to poke his head out of the shadows. With the advantage of social media, he was able to find my profile, snoop my pictures, and see exactly where I was, who I was living with, and what path I had chosen since we last shared a dwelling. None of this bothered me. I had nothing to hide from him. I was finally living my best life. What did bother me was him contacting me. I never expected to receive a message from him because I had never known him to be computer savvy. He had no use for the damn things. After over a decade, he reached out. Not just once, but many, many times. For an entire year, he had been messaging me on Facebook. Every month or two, he'd leave a brief message wishing me well, commenting on my guitar talents, congratulating me on my engagement, and it seemed like he was genuine in his messages. The problem with that? I got none of these messages when he originally sent them. There must have been a glitch with Facebook, because when his most recent message came through, all of the previous messages did as well. I woke up to a year's worth of little post-it-like notes in my Facebook Messenger along with a larger message on the tail end of it, sent that day, verbally scolding me for not responding. 
As I read through from beginning to end, the messages became angrier and more spiteful. At times, he'd bounce between a happy greeting and then a few days later a scathing reply to my lack of a response. After months of messaging me to no reply, his final rant, which somehow opened up the floodgates of Facebook and brought the rest of his previous messages along with it, read simply, Hi Travis. I've tried numerous times to have contact with you, but it seems like you don't want any kind of relationship with the man who is your real dad. It's really sad that it's come to this. A lot has changed in the last decade plus, and I thought I was pretty good to you for what I had to offer back then. Someday, you may regret your decisions. You will not hear from me again. Sometimes, the only people you fool is yourself. Less than a month later, he sent, Thinking about you, Travis. I love you, Dad. When I woke up that morning and checked my phone, seeing multiple notifications from Jackie Moore streaming down my lock screen sent my heart into my throat, and it lit my blood on fire. He was the last person on the planet I wanted to have a conversation with. He was everything that I once considered evil. Why would I want to even entertain the idea of having a relationship with the man? But before I could reach for my phone with the intent of unleashing absolute fury at him, I stopped, took a breath, and I thought to myself, he's only ever seen me as a little boy, quiet and kept in line. He's never gotten to hear what I have to say as a grown man. Maybe he should. It took a few minutes for me to get my bearings and settle myself on the couch. Phone in hand, I started typing. It wasn't hard to say everything that I did. Hell, I've played out meeting him as a grown man in my head many times, many ways. In some ways, I wish he had been in the same room just so he could see the man that I had become. In other ways, I'm glad that he wasn't. At the time, I don't think I could have been able to sway my brain or my body from exacting a revenge on him. Still, this was my time to speak, and he had no choice but to hear it. He would finally know my feelings towards him. My words flew from my brain with the intention of verbally eviscerating that man. For so long, I had wanted to cause him as much pain as he caused us. Physical, emotional, psychological. Any time a reminder of that man crept up, my skin would vibrate. Because of him, even looking in the mirror was difficult for me. Because out of the three of us boys... I share the most resemblance, and for a long time, I hated and judged myself because of it. I despised that man, and any man like him. I began first with a short, simple message. When I woke up today, I received all of your messages. Looking at the dates, I can see that most of them were sent last year. I didn't receive any of them until the last one came through. I wasn't sure if I was going to reply to any of them, but I do have some things I want you to hear. Dear Jackie, 
There's been a lot of things I've wanted to say to you over the past 10 years. In some ways, I didn't know how. And in other ways, I didn't think you deserved the satisfaction. I know you've wanted contact with me, but I didn't want any with you, which in my opinion is pretty understandable. I was 15 when you and mom divorced, and for any 15-year-old, that's a tough pill to swallow. It was for the better, though, because after that, I no longer had to witness my mother being berated and called down to the lowest on a daily basis. This is a woman who bared your children and scooped your sorry ass up on many different occasions, whether you deserved it or not. A woman who not only worked her fingers to the bone every day to be the main provider of her family while her boys were in school, and her husband stayed home, coming up with new and creative ways to accuse and abuse her for being unfaithful. My mother is the most loyal person someone like you could have ever wished to have as a wife. I will admit, we did have some wonderful times as a family, but those times were always rare and short-lived. Jackie, you had the ability to love like no other and be a great father, but your inner demons would always get the better of you, and that other side of you is something that still haunts me to this very day. I've seen and experienced things no, sh no child should ever witness, especially from somebody who's supposed to be a hero to him. You were never that role model to me, because a real man doesn't do something like that, not to his wife and his children. I was still pretty young when it all came to a head, and I remember very vividly the last night you tried anything. I would have lost my mother, my oldest brother, and you would have came back for Nick and I had I not called the police on your crazy ass. That was the only window we had to get away from you. Everybody was afraid of you, and afraid for us. One moment you were somebody's best pal, the next minute you despised them, and you were either out to get them or they were out to get you. Any family friendships we had didn't last, but the few friends that we were able to keep, we still have today. Even after we left Bell River, I tried to keep what little relationship I had with you, but I was 15, and trying to rationalize and sympathize to what you might have been going through was a lost cause, and I came to my own conclusions that if I wanted to create a better life for me, my family, and those around me, I would never be anything like my father. When it comes down to it, you have given me the template as to how not to treat your loved ones. I'm a better man because of it. At 25 years old, I've come a long way and I'm still going as far as my life will take me. I make the most of every day that I've been given, and I'm drama and worry-free now. I'm engaged and I'll try to be the best husband I can be, the most loving father I can be, and the best role model I can be. And unfortunately, I can't say that I learned any of that from you. I want you to know that deep down there is a part of me that holds the good parts of you close to my heart, and I do forgive you for everything that you put us through. But I'll never forget what you're capable of. I knew he would reply. I didn't intend to follow up anything I said. 
I also knew that he would play the same apologetic card that he always has. He agreed with all the points that I had made, and stated that if he could go back and change the past, he would have. He said that the abuse that he suffered at a young age followed him into his home. It seemed like he understood my point of view, at least, and accepted the fact that because of him, we suffered horrendously. As always, he had said he changed. <laughs> Good for him. But, given our past, I didn't buy it. I said my piece, and left a note of forgiveness on the end. But, I still had no desire to have him as a part of my life. I wanted him to stay on his side of the fence, and I would stay on mine, in hopes that our paths would never have to cross again. He couldn't accept that. The messages continued, endlessly. I would block him, he would create a new profile. I'd block the new profile, he'd contact me from his girlfriend's profile. He was relentless in his attempts to contact me, and again he would bounce between a simple, pleasant greeting to a scornful diatribe. I didn't have to reply to see that the man I had always known was still alive, seething beneath the surface of his newfound Christian facade. It angered him that I didn't acknowledge his so-called apologies. He would say things like, It takes a man to apologize, but it takes a bigger man to accept it. So be it. I knew the kind of man I was. His judgment of my character was the least of my concerns, yet he would still try everything he could to classify himself as the most important father figure in my life, like I was supposed to deify him the same way that Michael always had. He pushed the point that he had found religion quite often. He expected me to brush off the past like it had never happened. He somehow assumed that I could just forget and we could move forward with a relationship as father and son once again. How could I, when his Jekyll and Hyde persona was still so present? The manipulative execution of his messages proved to me that changing for him was an impossibility. His warped sense of who he thought I was as a person made him believe that he could skew my feelings and opinions towards him. I needed to validate my points again with crystal clarity this time. Jackie, I do accept your apology, and I'm happy when you say you've gotten your life on track. I lead a very busy life, so replying to your messages as instantly as you would like isn't possible for me. I wish you could respect that. My life no longer revolves around you. I believe I said all I needed to say in my first message, and had you read it fully, you would have seen that I do forgive you for all of the shit you put us through all those years ago, but I'll never forget the person that you were. I give you the benefit of the doubt that you have changed, and I hope for the sake of everyone around you that that is true. You're 100% right. It does take a bigger man to accept an apology, but... It takes a real man to treat his family the way they deserved in the first place. You wouldn't have anything to apologize for had you taken the time to value what you once had. His first response? How true, Travis. I wish you the very best. A week later? 
another six-word message. This is all I wish for. A week after that, he started sending pictures of his motorcycle, or him flexing his muscles while he was digging a pool, or doing a 180-degree vertical roundhouse kick in a karate gi. I've never seen a crippled man with multiple sclerosis have the ability to do things like that before. He wanted to give me a visual of how well he was doing now. He also still wanted that same intimidation factor present. He always saw himself as an alpha, and every person around him had to fill the beta role in his eyes. And then he said something that made me want to reach through my phone screen and end his pathetic existence. Hi, Travis. I was hoping too high, I guess, for you to respond. And now it's too late. Your father wasn't the only problem in this family. I owe no one nothing. I've paid my dues to you, and you want nothing to do with the only man that's been your real dad. I've accepted this, and you'll never hear from me again. Maybe, when there's a possibility of you growing up, you'll realize what you lost. Especially when you find out that I fell into big wealth. His mind games and sociopathic tendencies were never-ending. His vitriolic comments disgusted me. If he were ever man enough to say any of this to my face, he would have had his removed and fed to him on the spot. One of the things I've always hated about myself was having the ability to tap into that same anger that fuels him. The downside of sharing the same DNA, I suppose. The difference between us? I knew how to control mine. I came back at him with every ounce of venom I had swallowed over the years. I wanted it to burn through the rotten core of his heart. He deserved nothing less. Jackie, I've tried to make it abundantly clear that I want nothing to do with you. I'm astonished that you're still not getting the clue. You may consider yourself my only father, but trust me when I say this. You are nothing to me. I do have a father, a teacher, a mentor, someone who taught me how to act like a man, work like a man, fight like a man, took the second half of this life that you were a fucking sperm donor for, and taught me how to be a man. I could play into your twisted mind games and sculpt to your level, but I'm nothing like you or what you remember, and I'm glad because I'm more of a human being than you could ever wish to be. My father, Stephen Jardine, taught me how to be a good man. All you ever taught me was how to lie, cheat, steal, and treat others like shit, between beating and berating your wife and kids. I don't know about you, but to me, my father was the only problem in that household. So whatever diluted notions you have of us being to blame for any of that back then is laughable. You may have paid some of your dues through counseling and therapy and religion for your addictions and anger problems, but you will never pay your dues to your wife and kids. You reap what you sow, and you will be judged accordingly when St. Peter calls your name. In the end, 
The only thing I've lost is the weight and burden of being known as the son of Jackie Moore. That bears a certain stigma that gets carried with you most of your life. It's a disgusting smell that no matter how hard you try and scrub it off, it lingers. I'm glad you fell into big wealth. I certainly hope you don't choke on that silver spoon. Money means little to me personally. I've made something of myself as well. So your wealth, or whatever inheritance you wanted to try and dangle over my head, can be used in other ways. I know one thing. It will never buy back what you lost, Jackie. No longer will your footsteps trample through my peaceful mind. My words carried immense weight behind them. A weight he never had to support. Finally, he granted me silence from his end. I left him unable to argue, and I wanted him to feel as powerless as he made all of us feel. I don't think anyone has ever left that man speechless, but it was only for a time. With the ability to finally breathe in a space that no longer occupied anything to do with Jackie Moore, I carried on with my life as normal. At the end of 2015, on a cold snowy evening, I was outside working on my snowblower. Oblivious to anything around me that didn't involve the task at hand, Ashley slowly crept up behind me and slid a small white stick into my line of sight. Seeing two pink bars in the viewing window, I felt my heart do a backflip. I was going to be a daddy. I was excited and terrified all at the same time. Do I even have what it takes to be a father? Sure, the examples that Steve set for me helped guide me into who I was, and Cliff's steadfast resolve showed me that a man is characterized by his actions and his word. But I still felt like my genes held poison inside of them. How could I pass something like that along to an innocent infant? Overactive scenarios played through my brain with the resemblance of classic horror films such as Rosemary's Baby and The Omen. What if Jackie's sadistic tendencies skipped a generation? What if, being the youngest son in my family, the same as Jackie had been, somehow passed down the same mental disorders to my eldest? as it happened with Michael. Did I possess the tools to be able to accept a situation like that once again? All of these thoughts swirled around in my head constantly. I didn't want to resemble Jackie more in any way. I have a strong sense of self, but I also acknowledge the fact that his temper could be buried somewhere deep inside me. I never wanted something like that to emerge uncontrollably one day, and that scared me to no end. Ashley, my true north, soothed many of those dark thoughts. She tried to keep me focused. She assured me that I wasn't going to turn into a monster. As the months passed, we did everything soon-to-be parents had to do to prepare for the arrival of our new addition doctor's appointments, prenatal exams, and at 20 weeks, we traveled 
to Edmonton for our 3D ultrasound. We were going to find out the sex of our child. With x-ray jelly on Ashley's ever-growing belly, we could see our little human in an orange and black hue, kicking himself in the forehead. We watched as the technician moved the cursor past the bum and dropped an uppercase P over his crotch. We were having a boy. Overjoyed and somewhat overwhelmed, we at least now knew what we were having, so it was time to buy boy clothes, set up the nursery, and continue to collect all of the things that we needed to care for this little life soon arriving. At seven and a half months, our town started burning down around us. It was a very hot, very dry spring and summer. When the month of May hit, we were surrounded by wildfires in all directions, and with one highway in and out of this small oil town, an evacuation of 88,000 people was imminent. On May 1st and 2nd, the fires began to move in, creeping closer and quicker. The entire town was on edge, smoke looming in the distance. Many began to prepare, but many others didn't. I was working the day of the third, luckily only a half a day because I was asked to work some overtime. Ashley was keeping me posted on the fire's distance, and we had packed our baby clothes and some other supplies in case we had to bug out quick. We live on the side of a tree-lined dirt road that leads into a forest. Enough to make anyone uneasy and for a pregnant woman, downright fearful. She called me and stressed that I had to make my way home. The fire was hugging our backyard and we had to go. Through bottlenecked traffic, what would take normally five hours to get to the closest city took us 14 and a half to get halfway. Driving with a girl who had to pee every hour and trying to keep her stress levels as low as possible, we made it to a faraway gas station to meet up with her parents, brother and sister-in-law, and their twin boys. A family friend offered Ashley and I a place to sleep for the night while the rest of the family continued on to find a hotel. I'd like to say thank you again to the Lee family for helping us keep it together that night. The next day, we continued on to meet up with Cliff, Maureen, Chad, Jess, Finley, and Leaf. We stayed in a hotel for about a week and then convoyed to Calgary to stay with Ashley's aunt and uncle, Bev and Merv. God love them for putting up with us for the better part of a month. And after a full month of being displaced, the all-clear was finally given to head back home. Much of the town was still left standing, but the devastation for some was unbelievable. We were counted among the lucky that still had a home to return to, but for some friends, family, and many others, everything was lost. Our little town's resilience was amazing, though. Everybody that returned helped in every way they could. The rebuilding process began, and the town's strength was incomparable. It was a community to be proud of. As people tried to rebuild the lives they had, 
we prepared to welcome a new one into the world. On July 13th, 2016, after 32 and a half hours in a little hospital room, multiple attempts to get things going, and an epidural that could have dropped a bull moose through all of Ashley's pain and perseverance, Hunter Chadwick Moore finally made his arrival at 8.22 p.m. Six pounds, 14 ounces of everything I could have ever wished for. The greatest gift I had ever received. With a whirlwind of emotions surrounding us, we left the hospital and got our little man settled at home and accepted our new roles as mommy and daddy. Every time I looked into his big blue eyes, my heart wanted to burst. I've never felt more complete in my entire life. Hunter, you give my life purpose. Watching you grow and learn each day fills me with so much pride. I love being your daddy, Boogie Boo. We quickly adapted to changing diapers, endless nightly feedings, and doing everything we could to keep this fragile little human alive. Ashley was an exhausted mom, but seeing how she cared for our little man gave me an entirely new appreciation of her. Her motherly instincts were impeccable. This is who she was meant to be. As the summer turned to fall, and fall to winter, we were comfortable with our new routine. Ashley at home taking care of everything, while I worked 12-hour days at Hertz. Over that half a year, Jackie would attempt to reach out, congratulating me on becoming a father, and I continued to ignore the man. I had zero interest in having any more conversations with him. My only wish was that one day, years down the road, I could sit down with him, maybe drink a coffee, and show him the man I had become, in spite of all that I could have. In February, yes, again, February, a lot of the key points in my life land on that month for some reason, I received a call that completely caught me off guard. My phone rang, and I ducked into the sea can at work to take it. It was Mom, and I greeted her with the same smile in my voice I always have when I'm talking to her. And then she says, I'm not sure how to tell you this, and I'm not sure how you will take it, but your father died today. It's hard to describe the wave of emotions that hit me. They hit me like an RKO out of nowhere. No longer was my mind focused on my work that day. I walked back to my office, rested my hands on my desk, and with my head down I hear my co-worker Sheila behind me say, Everything alright, Travis? I had shared a few stories with her in the past because I considered Sheila a true friend. She has a heart of gold. Choking down a huge lump in my throat, I stared ahead blankly, and I just said, My father just died. Without a hesitation, she wrapped her arms around me with a hug. I didn't want to cry. I felt like, after everything I had said to Jackie, 
I would have been the last person to ever shed a tear over his death. It was uncontrollable. Every bit of hate, every bit of love, every bit of anything I ever felt for that man erupted out of me like a Yellowstone geyser. I felt stupid for my demeanor breaking like that around people who knew me mostly as just a work acquaintance. I spoke to my supervisor, Peter, and I left for the day. When I arrived home, Ashley asked why I was home so early, and I broke down again in her arms. Why was this happening to me? Jackie Moore didn't deserve any of us showing that much heart towards him. He rarely showed any towards us. I also felt like the universe had robbed me. Robbed me of the chance to see the man one last time. Somewhere deep inside my broken psyche, I felt like if he had been able to stand in front of me face to face and see all of our similarities, he would see that there was many things that he could have become had he taken a better path in life. I know now that that seems more like a pipe dream than anything, but at the time, these were my ultimate intentions, and that chance was stripped away from me faster than I could blink. Jackie was afflicted with COPD. His lungs were ravaged from years of smoking and drug use. He tried many times to kick his cigarette habit, but never could permanently. And he passed away, choking for his last breath. He died suffering. A lesser man would have taken solace in that, and after living through what we had with him, it would have been understandable. But not me. Nobody deserves to go out like that. In fear confusion, in pain. Some of the things that he made us feel each day living under his thumb, but life is like a boomerang. What you give, you get. Nothing happens by fate. You create your own fate by your own actions. That's called karma. And for a very long time after his death, all of my inner turmoil felt unresolved. I felt like his spirit was still at the forefront of everything I thought about. Regret and sadness filled me. Should I have tried harder to make peace? Would it have made a difference whether or not anything I said to him was face to face? My brain was beating on me like I was in the fifth round of a title fight against Georges St. Pierre. I would have taken the physical barrage over the mental one any day of the week, constantly second-guessing my actions and wondering if I should have taken a different approach. My mind was betraying me. Was I blowing it all out of proportion, or was everything inside of my head as it should be? That mental battle was driving me crazy. I'd spend hours on end playing out different scenarios in my head, constantly wondering how things could have played out in different ways had I done one or two things differently, given the chance to go back to specific turning points in my life. 
That paradox was psychologically crippling to me. It was hard to accept that a lot of these things I just couldn't change, no matter how hard I wanted to. The one thing I did know was that I had to keep moving forward. For the sake of myself and the family I had built, I couldn't live in the past any longer. I had to try and pull myself out of all that darkness and try and find some light. How do I begin to even do that? I felt like anyone I did share a story or two with didn't fully understand where I was coming from. And even though I had Ashley, my rock, I couldn't dump all of my baggage onto her shoulders. I didn't want to burden her with any of it. So even though I had all of these amazing people around me, that feeling of being alone was something I couldn't shake. A constant battle with extremely dark thoughts and not wanting to subject anyone to my crazy headspace only compounded things. On top of day-to-day -day life and stresses and changing jobs multiple times then due to layoffs and work shortages made me feel like I was easily cast aside. I was just another number in the system. Subtract me and would it even make a difference? Maybe they would be better off. I hadn't felt this defeated since I was a child. I didn't want to feel this way. But that overwhelming helplessness was eating me alive. Ashley could see it and felt that any time she attempted to help it would only make things worse. But that certainly wasn't the case. Actually, having a fresh set of logical eyes from the outside looking in provided me with new perspectives, new ways to battle the monsters between my ears. Ashley still didn't fully understand my history, but over time, a few years, her grasp on who I was inside became firmer. She allowed me to vent to her, held me as I bawled like a baby, recounting many of the events that shaped me. Ashley would sit and listen as I pinballed between landmarks in my life, sympathizing and providing her own insights. Our childhoods were drastically different. She never experienced trauma the way I did, so... I'm sure even listening to her basket case of a husband had to have been extremely hard. I know it was. She could only do so much, though. Her tools were limited, and I didn't want her to feel like she had to help me carry my satchel of bullshit. Over many conversations and even some pretty tense arguments, the suggestion was made that I try to talk to somebody outside of all of this. As hard as it may have been at the time for me to accept it, I finally relented. What could it hurt? The first time I was set up with a therapist meeting, they paired me with a therapist in training, a college student. I spent about an hour laying out as many things as I could in that short amount of time, only to be met with silence. This young man was dumbstruck. I noticed him taking notes, 
and as I left, he assured me that a more capable colleague would be in touch to follow up. When I finally got to sit down with a professional, most of that time was spent pushing all the things I was trying to say aside and asking inept questions. He may as well have just asked me what my favorite color was. My first therapist experience was proving to be futile, but I was willing to continue to try. After our meeting and multiple phone and text conversations, I came to my own conclusion that this was also not the right pairing for me, and I'm still searching for the right person to talk to, but this is all part of the process, guys. Talking about these things to someone, anyone, is always the best first step to take, which is why I'm also talking to all of you. I may not have found the perfect match yet between professional and patient, but had I not began looking, I'd still be struggling to try and free myself from the confines of my own brain. Some days are harder than others, I'll admit, and that constant battle between angel and demon across my shoulders can leave my head in ruin, but I try to be vigilant enough to recognize those days and I'll fight tooth and nail in that never-ending battle of mind over memory. I may seem somewhat knowledgeable about situations like the one I've lived through, but I don't have all the answers. I don't think any one person does. It takes many different perspectives to weigh in on something like this, and by sharing my story, I've had a few already reach out and provide their own insights that have certainly helped me. They say it takes a community to raise a child, and those words ring true with me in more ways than you know. If it wasn't for the people in my life that helped me in some sort along the way, I don't think I would be here to share any of this, so a profound thank you is all I can give. I don't know how else to repay that much kindness other than to use my voice and my talents for good. There's way too much destruction and hate in this world. And I do know one thing without a shadow of a doubt. I get to be the best father and husband I can be. I will be all of the things I wish I could have had growing up. And I'll do everything in my power to reach back into that darkness and grab as many hands as possible. Nobody should ever go through something like this alone. There's always help. Even though you may be blinded by fear, anger, or helplessness, that fog will eventually clear, and you'll be able to reach for those hands searching for you. When you do get pulled back into the sunlight, that warmth will heat your soul, and maybe it will ignite something inside of you that will provide a light for someone else. At times, mine burns pretty bright. I'm always here to talk, and now that you know some of my story, I'd like you to share some of yours with me as well. We all have stories to tell. Some of them good, some of them difficult to talk about, but they make us who we are, and they've led us to where we are today. Thanks again for coming on this journey with me, folks. I'm still not sure where the car will take us, but 
Let's try and enjoy some of the scenery along the way. That's pretty much me in a nutshell. I hope you come back for the next episode and beyond, folks. I'm sure some of the next stories won't be as tough as the one I just told, but let's try to have some fun and maybe learn something about each other along the way. I love you all, endlessly and wholeheartedly. Thanks again. Trav out.
Hunter, can you say goodbye, everyone? Goodbye. Can you also say, if you don't like my gate, don't, don't swing on it. Awesome. Thank you, buddy. You keep me, I keep you safe. <laughs> you do keep me safe. Monsters don't get you. No, monsters will never get me again, buddy. I love you. Monsters don't want to get me. No, daddy will keep you safe too.